Welcome to Conversations in Coco, produced and hosted by Lauren Hynek. That's me. In these episodes, you will listen to interviews and other audio components that stem from the writings and newsletters found via the Substack platform where I am producing content. There are previous posts and future posts that will arrive to your inbox, available in various levels of membership found at laurenontheweekend.substack.com. Connect with me on Twitter at Weekend Chocolate and Instagram, Lauren on the Weekend. For all those three weekend mentions, that is WKND. Thanks as always for your support. William Mullen, author and photographer of Odd Apples, and also the brand director of Raka Chocolate in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Lauren. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. It's so cool to talk to you because I've been following a series of your posts and poetry and a bit of like how you've grown into cacao and, and plants the past few years now. I was looking at something actually in your Instagram and it looks like there's a marked shift when apples came into your life. Do you remember when, when you became enamored by them? Yeah, I actually became enamored with apples back when I was growing up in the UK when I was in high school. I don't know the exact year. I want to say 2006 or 2007. We lived close to a Waitrose, which is like a sort of bougie, overpriced shopping market in the UK. It's like there's Waitrose, Sainsbury's and Tesco's. And I feel like Waitrose is somewhere under Marks and Spencer, which is kind of like the Dean and DeLuca which RIP, I think Dean DeLuca is not around anymore. But they would basically carry a lot of specialty things. You know, it's just like a grocery chain that focused on specialty items. <laughs> that was the closest grocery store to us. Uh, we lived in a small town. I was getting really curious about fruit and vegetables because I grew up, this is not my mother. She did a good job nourishing us, but I just was a American child and I loved chicken nuggets. And that was really the extent of my culinary experiences for the most part. But I had a shift where I was, this is like maybe too much information, but I was like always on ADD meds. I've been reading about diet and ADD. It was kind of around that time that like the stuff about like fish and omega threes, helping people with ADD came out. So something just like hit me and I was like, you know what? I want to eat better. If this is going to help me, I didn't like taking medication. So I started paying more attention to food and I've always had a sweet tooth. So fruit's kind of where I started, like trying to eat healthier, it's eating a lot of fruit. And I got really into buying fruit and I was at Waitrose and amongst all these perfect supermarket apples that were waxy or shiny or just like unblemished was this bin of like gold potato-y looking apples called Egremont Russet. So the name was also hilarious to me because in America you have like Pink Lady, Golden Delicious, two syllables, you know, maybe three sometimes. Very marketable. Very marketable, memorable, simple. And, you know, Egremont Russet, it just sounded ridiculous. Like it was so self-important sounding for an apple to me. Like it was so funny. It was so stuffy. And it looked funny, yeah. It looked like a gold sprayed potato. By normal apple standard, it looked ugly, you know? But I, I thought it was kind of beautiful looking, but also kind of ugly looking at the same time. And I just was like, you know what? This is here for a reason. I have to know why this is in the store, you know? 
I've always kind of been like that. That's what got me into chocolate. I just like trying things. That's sometimes to my detriment. In this case, it really worked out. Um, so I bought a bunch. And on the way home, I ate one. It just had all these layers of like rolling in a pile of leaves in, in fall. Or like drinking hot apple cider when I was a kid in Michigan. Or like sitting next to a fire. and Or like eating roasted chestnuts in Covent Garden. It had all these nutty, acidic, sweet, dense, sometimes a starchy quality. Just it tasted like nothing else I'd ever tasted an apple before and actually took me on a culinary journey the way that sort of wine does for people or cheese or, or chocolate, obviously. And that just blew me away. Just instantly I was like, what is going on here? You know? And I immediately went home and Googled like Vermont rusted apple, I wanted to learn more about it. And from there, I learned about how apples are heterozygotes and they don't grow true from seed. So if you take, you know, your Granny Smith apple seed and you plant them, you know, all five of them, because apples generally have about five seeds per fruit, although that number does vary. Each one of those seeds would be a different apple, a new apple. They'll all have a bit of Granny Smith in them and then a bit of whatever pollen parent came through say like you know rural gala i don't know if those two are if we can pollinate together there are some you know some pollinate others and some can't that stuff i'm not too sharp on that is blowing everything that i knew about johnny appleseed like out the window <laughs> totally well i mean that's why the united states is so popular with apples because, you know, not just because of johnny appleseed but you know the legend is true he brought seeds because the seeds carried new genetic information that made apples so adaptable. Kind of just blew my mind. The fact that the seeds would make new apple every time and therefore it would be pretty much impossible to taste every apple ever because the apple just keeps making itself a constant conversation that the tree is having with soil, with the atmosphere, with us, and you know, with birds and, and other land-dwelling creatures that might consume the fruit and take the seed somewhere and plant it via poop, usually. Your connection to apples, your connection to cacao, and now also this fascination with pollinators and bees. And, you know, you mentioned them in this kind of symbiosis of how they function with the fruit and the tree. And it sounds like there might even be some similarity between, I hadn't recognized this uh, crossbreeding that the both of the species go through. But what about your memories of, of bees? Did you grow up as a child who was afraid of bees or who got stung or who loved them? I did always love how cute bumblebees were, but I was low-key terrified of them because as a kid, I did get stung in the mouth. I'm not sure if it was a honeybee or a yellow jacket. That part is fuzzy. But I was eating a bag of pretzels at the pool and the bee wanted the pretzel that I was about to put in my mouth. And I was young, I forget how young, and I put the whole pretzel in my mouth. And the bee was still on it and the bee stung me in the mouth and I spit it out cool. So bees have been on my mind for sure because that, that little bump is actually in my mouth still from the sting. I did always love seeing bumblebees. I thought they were like the teddy bears of the sky. I thought they were delightful. They burrow in the ground. So I always thought that was fascinating. They're not like honeybees. Mason bees also burrow in the ground. But, um, you know, honeybees obviously have hives and wasps and things like that but that became more so in the past couple of the years once i started to really understand like their role in the fact that we get to eat anything you know this whole 
mind-blowing thing. I mean, it's true of cacao, this flower to fruit, and this flower has to be pollinated by these tiny little things that most of us don't even pay attention to, you know, in our daily lives. I mean, for years, I really didn't think about bees this much. Or, you know, with cacao, the midges, those things are so microscopic. Obviously, we can hand pollinate, but, you know, that's extremely labor intensive. And for, you know, centuries and beyond thousands of years, these little insects have been doing that work for us. They've been participating in our economies and producing for us. Like if you want to put it like that, like pollinators are like wrapped up in our capitalist systems. Wow. I find that crazy. <laughs> we benefit from pollinator labor, you know, with cacao midges. Like think right. about all the chocolate we eat. I'm sure some of it is hand pollinated, but I'm sure a lot of it is really just pollinated by the midges. In the supply chain of cacao and chocolate is this fly, this tiny little fly, and it isn't even aware. It's just doing its thing. It's just trying to survive. And obviously true of mason bees and, and bumblebees and honeybees for our fruits. That just constantly blows my mind. You know, mm -hmm. These, it's like, yeah, they're just doing their thing. And they've been doing their things for thousands of years, but they're also now wrapped up in our things because of the way we produce these plants and the way that we've started to have a relationship with them. Yeah, it's crazy to me. Through your work, through the imagery, you're telling a story that almost hasn't been told before. Like the, the way you're formatting your art and the artistry of conjoining those elements. I mean, people will have to go look. When obviously when they hear this, this is only an audio format, not a visual format. So please go and see William's Instagram and, and buy the book. But how could you speak to maybe what goes on your in your mind when you want to layer those elements in a photograph? Well, I would say like instinct and emotion. I often am taking photos. I mean, I take them for work at Raqqa all the time. And that has more of a formula to it because Raqqa has a brand image. But with my personal work, it's very emotional. Like it's, I am either trying to exercise an emotion that I'm dealing with in my personal life, and I might have more ideas around that time, or like that emotion drives me to the studio to, to shoot an idea that I maybe had in my mind. But a lot of the times it's like, I just have a, an image that pops into my brain and I can't get it out. And so I just go to the factory to shoot it. I sketch things out for Raqqa, but my personal work, I don't sketch things out. I should probably at some point. I know a lot of people do that. Uh, and in film school, I did do that. But for my photos, it's almost like a painting. Like I just kind of keep going with it until it works, until the, the mood that I was, that I had in my head has been reached. Or maybe it evolves into something totally different when I'm shooting. And I just go with that until 4 a.m. and I fall down. <laughs> <laughs> it is moody it is but it's also delicate and at the same time like there's a a nature of flamboyancy is like the only word that I can think of at the moment yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know my queerness had something to do with my work I thought about that before it must bleed into my work somehow yeah that would be instinctual 
in Spanish, it would be llamativo. And it's like something that calls to you, something that you're drawn to. I think what's interesting too about your work and, and where you are and like how these elements overlap is that you're in a very urban setting, New York City with millions of people. And I think often we don't think of those areas other than Central Park, right? But these areas where you have flora and fauna and yet your work focuses and I see so much through your Instagram stories of you finding nature in concrete in the city. Yeah, I think that's what I find so beautiful about living in a place like New York is that even when we feel like we've conquered the environment in some way, you know, we've, we've dumped tar all over the ground or cement, plants find a way to, to survive and thrive. I just finished reading Gathering Moss by Robin Wall Kimmerer, which I highly recommend. The same um, author as Blading Sweetgrass, correct? Yeah, it's so, I mean, Braiding Sweetgrass is just life-changing. But Gathering Moss is very similar. And she, she talks about city mosses and how they, you know, they were originally mosses that really thrived in sort of like wet, uh, rocky areas and now really thrive in like city crevices where like pigeons and rats pee because they feed really well off the nitrogen and the rock. And then, you know, certain types of species, like one of my favorite species called Eastern Fleabane Daisy. And I see it, it's, there's literally a Fleabane Daisy outside of Raqqa. And it just seems to thrive in these little like street crevices. Raqqa is, you know, we're an industrial block. It does not seem super hospitable to plant life. But I saw wild chamomile the other day. There's a cherry tree. There's apple trees in Red Hook. There's peach trees. There's tons of mulberries, service berries. All these things can be consumed. There's all these herbs and, you know, crown batch is a lagoon. Queen Anne's lace is a carrot. There's lots of Queen Anne's lace. Yeah, like these plants find a way to thrive and they adapt with us. They change. And Andrea, my partner in Odd Apples, you know, he described to me, I'm not very good at articulating my own process, but he had said to me, like, you know, it's like you're having a conversation with the apples. And that really opened my brain to like, just like, not just me, but just like all of us. We're all having a conversation with the plants that we interact with on a daily basis, whether it's plants we eat or plants we walk by and that live in the same spaces that we do because we share the planet with them in general. But it's, you know, it's still happening in cities. I find that really beautiful. I find it just as beautiful as it just happening when you're outside of the city too. But there's something really exciting and hopeful about seeing like a plant in the city that is more than just ornamental. I mean, ornamental is also lovely, but like the gift of nourishment, you know, in a real way and that happening in a crack in the sidewalk is pretty crazy. That's so beautiful. I love that reflection. And, you know, going back to your earlier statement about how tasting that apple took you almost to a setting and like gave you a story, that conversation, that dialogue, I think is now coming about with our hopefully revised uh, relationships with plants where we can, we can have that discussion because I think what mass marketed agriculture wanted us to believe before was that, you know, red delicious tasted like red delicious. And what we're now discovering or rediscovering, or if you will, is that 
when I have a certain cacao or a certain apple, I can be transported to a place or a feeling. Totally. I think that's like what I love about, it's no coincidence. I think that both chocolate and apples, they hooked me, you know, now here I am deep in their worlds. It's just, as you said, like, you know, we've been taught that these foods are just this way. Chocolate, you know, tastes like, like cheese or Cadbury and has a chocolatey flavor. And apples taste like you know, Red Delicious or Granny Smith. They're either sweet and crisp or tart, and that's it. Um, and they serve these certain functions. But in reality, you know, cacao is this wonderful fruit that has these purple seeds that then go through these crazy processes that we do. It's a conversation with microbes and time and us uh, and banana leaves, you know, then goes through this crazy machine process that we've come up with. And in the end, we actually have gotten more out of that seed that was always in there, right? That potential is always in there. That flavor is always locked in there. And we found a way to unlock it. And while it resembles nothing like the raw material it came from, it can really be a fascinating edible poetry. I forget who had said this quote, but someone said like, cacao speaks in the language is chocolate. I think Mackenzie of Map Chocolate said that. And I just thought that was beautiful. I don't know if she said that quote on her own originally, but I'm attributing it to her because that's how where I read it. And I thought it was absolutely like just yeah perfect and that sounds like something robin roll kimmer would say <laughs> and something that i'm that i've said about apples like you know apples are speaking to us and you know one of the languages is fruit um but even trees you know like they'll point towards the sun you know because they're looking for light they'll tell us the story of the light and how the light travels in a specific area too which i find beautiful and yeah, apples, same thing, you know, like the soil, the climate, the genetics of that tree, what's around it, all those things. I think the difference between maybe apples and cacao is cacao fruit is really, right? you don't get a lot of it. Um, in the pod, it's mostly about the seeds. And then so the, fl- the sort of poetry and the language is, is chocolate. Where the apples, you have both, you can eat the actual apple, but you can also make cider. And so that's another way that we experience like this narrative of, of the plant and its story and its character. This is true of many plants. I think what's exciting is we're gonna just keep being like, oh yeah, of course, like navy beans taste different, you know, <laughs> from region to region or like hard because of course, right? Like you know, these plants have all these different genetic expressions and they are going to express themselves differently in different places. They're going to respond to their environments. I've heard you say this a couple of times and it's like you almost see from overhead that it's multiple factors involved. Like I think I've often thought of it and shame on the system of and the legacy of colonialization that made this commodity, right? Where it's been more difficult to put that fresh product and even now this like cacao fino, so to speak, together with us when we are thousands of miles away from its birthplace. How do you play with or even consider like the concept of, of space 
because apples you have growing next door or, you know, in your neighborhood. Yeah, it's crazy, you know, because I was thinking as I was walking here about that ProPublica piece that just came out about, you know, like how little like the top 1% pay in taxes. And, you know, a lot of those dudes like Warren Buffett are always like, you make yourself, you know, I did this, I built this. And it's just, you know, it's not true, right? Like Warren Buffett, he might've invested and, and whatnot. And so sure, he had a lot of agency in generating his own wealth, but at the same time, you know, those companies he invested in, they had laborers. You don't make yourself that rich. Like we're all together building things in the world and these divisions of who is contributing what well, it's artificial, right? Like these supply chain divisions, they're imposed. They're not real. Ultimately, like everything is linked. The midge that pollinates the cacao flower, you know, the farmer that's growing the tree and harvesting the fruit, the people at the fermentary that are fermenting it, the people who are getting it to the port, the chocolate makers, people who work under the chocolate makers, like, you know, with apples, um, the seeds, mason bees, et cetera, et cetera. These are actually all linked and together everyone needs one another, right? I can't make a chocolate all by myself. I can't make an apple all by myself. And so these divisions that we've imposed, they're not real. I mean, we've made them real in our systems, but they're actually not real. Like you can take them away. You can take the idea of them away and the power structure of them away. About apples and space, it's, it's true. Like, you know, I can just walk, there's so many city trees and I can spend time around them and have a relationship with them and find really beautiful. And, and like morally, it, it feels good. What got me into chocolate, really, aside from loving it, but what made me want to work in it is seeing the possibility of it. I think, you know, what craft chocolate has done is so exciting um, in terms of just getting people to pay attention to origin and that there's people behind this process, you know, like, and then there's this exciting step further where like origin chocolate is happening, you know, it's been happening, but people are now really paying attention to it in chocolate consuming countries. But like the wealth is, is staying in the country because the value add of making the chocolate from cacao is happening in country like Ghana or lots of places in South America. Like that to me is so thrilling and so exciting. You know, just imagine chocolate really, you know, people are always saying, you know, craft chocolate is a lot like wine, but craft chocolate would really be a lot like wine when growing countries are producing the end product and it's all being associated with the growing country, the way that wine is with the growing region. Right now with chocolate, it's all separated. And it's all about the maker and the brand. And that's great too. You know, I'm not saying that chocolate shouldn't ever be made out of country because I don't think that's true, but it, there's obviously an imbalance, right? I mean, if we stay with the analogy, it's like having the cider house or the sugar shack right there. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. There's maple farms and, and there's cider houses that are also orchards. But there's also a lot of cider, especially in this country, that is, you know, that they're buying commodity apple juice, you know. There's this, again, this artificial separation there. It's, it's real in our, in our ways and that it's imposed and we've we fitted our systems to it, but take it away. 
and it's really not like that. Peel back the layers. William, this has been so nice to speak to you and, and really has me thinking about a lot of other themes. Any final thoughts from you or something you'd like to close on? This has been a, a real pleasure. It's very rare that I get to talk about chocolate and apples and their similarities. I think chocolate, I mean, and apples, but I think especially chocolate is such a good gateway into these things. Um, and I love what you're doing with that, just like, and have been for some time now, right? Like, it's well, been a while. You. Yeah, five years. Uh, yeah, and also just, yeah, like props, they're cheers to you. I mean, like, I don't, it's very hard to stick with something and keep a conversation going on this long. So I want to say that, like, I, you know, I'm honored to be here and, and talk about these things with you. Hopefully I didn't talk too much. I do, as you said, I can be a bit chatty. <laughs> well, that means a lot coming from someone who the New York Times has featured. Hello. Oh, oh my God, LOL. No one read that. I've become better at it, but at the time I was very bad at articulating what it is I, I was doing, you know, with the project. And I, I find that interview to be cringeworthy on my half. If the New York Sorry Times is mother. listening, we'll have them uh, <laughs> now hear this interview. Thank you again.